I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. I'm also excited to announce that the Karen Lewis Eating Disorder Center is expanding throughout the country. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. My guest for today is Dr. Maureen Rubin, and we talk about the most fascinating parts of childhood, neuroscience, neglect, all these things that go into our little souls and little psyches and form the concept of who we think we are. So I'm really excited about this episode, so let's jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting here right now with this incredible soul, and you've all heard me say many times on this podcast, you do not have to have had an eating disorder to be an incredible eating disorder therapist, and we have evidence of that today. My guest is Dr. Maureen Rubin. Mo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Karen. I am really honored to have you here. I'm honored to be sitting across from you. I haven't seen you in many years. We've worked together and and it's just, th- this, is, this is why I find myself so lucky doing this podcast. But Maureen, well, by the way, everyone, we are going to call her Mo. That's what we've all called her for years and years and years. So Mo, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. My name is Dr. Maureen Rubin, but I prefer to go by Mo, and I've been working with those who are in recovery from an eating disorder since about 2008. I got into working with those who want to recover from an eating disorder because I used to be a professional dancer in another life, and in the dance world, so many um, young women um, you know, grew up in an environment where eating disorder behaviors and um, a focus on body image and performance and belonging and acceptance was part of the environment that I spent many of my formative years in. I consider myself to be very lucky that I didn't end up developing an eating disorder. I just didn't have the temperament for it, to be honest. But um, I'm in private practice. I love what I do. And a lot of my approach to helping folks recover from the eating, their eating disorder is a process that I call 
piecing yourself back together again, piecing being P-E-A-C-I-N-G. So can you share with listeners what that means, that beautiful piecing yourself back together? Sure. Um, Well, I would say that I don't neatly fit into a professional category, right? I, I work as an eating disorder therapist, having never had an eating disorder, but, and I'm very into neuroscience, but I'm also very spiritual. And so for me, I kind of combine all of these different elements into a unique experience where I kind of help people by looking at their mind-body-spirit connection. And so I can go into a little bit about what I mean when I say that, and that's the process of piecing yourself back together. The mind, as I see it, is the authentic you, the self-awareness, the consciousness, the you that is observing yourself having an experience, right? So if I'm having an experience of anxiety, it's the you, right? The mind that is observing myself um, having sensations of anxiety, having anxious thoughts. It's the you that when you're in a state of meditation is observing yourself having the experience of meditation. So that's the mind. That's, that's the self-awareness piece. And then the body is the brain, the spinal cord, the nervous system, and all of the chemicals and hormones and neuro and neurotransmitters and, you know, um, and the neurosynapses that fire in the body. And oftentimes people, I think, confuse the brain for the mind. And for me, those two are very different things. I look at the body as something that can be trained, right? That the body has the ability to get habituated, that the body has uh, likes a predictable future, that the body likes routine, the body likes to think the same thoughts and have the same chemical releases and have the same sensations, almost like clockwork. And when we do something over and over again, our body likes to anticipate the next time that that thing is going to happen. And so I kind of view the body as sort of a trained animal. I know that that's sort of sort of an offensive way of looking at it, but in the same way that you can train an animal, I think that you can train your body. And then there's the spirit. And the spirit is, I think, the way I think about it is your destiny, your purpose, the reason you're here, the, the ultimate, um, the ultimate purpose of your life experiences and piecing yourself together means getting your body in alignment with your consciousness and in alignment with your destiny. And if you can align your self-awareness with your body and program your body to be mindful of the mind and also be in alignment with your destiny to me, that's piecing yourself back together. And to me, that's the process of finding authentic power, really recovering and getting back something that was taken from you. As you're talking, I keep hearing in my head so many times we talk about the connection or disconnection of body, mind, and spirit. And the way you explained it to look at each piece 
separate and individual, that's where distress comes from or disorder. If we are only living in body or mind or spirit, we're out of balance and almost frantically trying to find balance. That's what was coming to my mind while you were talking. I don't know if if you have anything to add to that. Yeah. I mean, the word that I use to describe it is sort of incoherence, right? Our, Our energetic bodies are scattered. We're all over the place. And we all, all human beings have had that experience where we feel disconnected from our purpose, um, out of control with our bodies and brains and nervous systems, and, and disconnected from our higher self, right? And when that happens, we experience distress, dis-ease, disconnection, pain, all of the things that are sort of um, go along with imbalance, which is exactly what you're saying. I would never say something comes out of one specific thing because we are we are very complex beings um but i do know that you work a lot around childhood emotional neglect and the other thing i'm thinking as we're having this conversation is when we look at toddlers young kids that so far have not experienced trauma or neglect. They are so free in their body. They're so free in their voice. They're so free in their hunger and fullness. They're so free in play. Do you think it's from early childhood emotional neglect where the pieces, now I'm saying P-I-E-C-E-S, start separating and compartmentalizing? I think it's definitely part of the storm. I think it's definitely a, a piece of the puzzle for many, many people. And I and I think that, you know, there are there are seven human needs, as I like to describe them. The first one is, you know, um, the first one is air. We need air and we need water and we need food and we need sleep. And we need shelter. And after all of those needs, there are two kind of other needs that are equally as important, which is connection and expression. And if we're not able to feel connected to those around us, and we're not able to express ourselves, whether it's our emotional self or our spiritual self or our authentic self, because we grew up in an environment where the self was either rejected or didn't feel safe or whatever that was, that then um, leads to a deficit in some way. And so in my work, when I work with folks who have an eating disorder, I'm looking for trauma. And when I say trauma, I mean something very specific. Say a little bit more when, when, when you say, so and and forgive me if I'm confusing, when I think about trauma with my clients or even from my own experience in life, we've, we've talked about this on the show before as well. There's big trauma, big T trauma and little T trauma. And I think it's the little T traumas that nobody is immune to, but we don't attend to it enough because we think, oh, it was just, they just got their feelings hurt or someone just made fun of them. It's no big deal. They'll move on or they got scared. Are, are you saying that there's like a specific trauma that you go to? Is, is that how you're, you're referring to it? 
Yeah. So for me, trauma in the simplest form is trauma is anything that dysregulates the nervous system. And so there could be um, abuse, right? Abuse is easy to see because abuse is an event that occurs. So there's either physical abuse and most people have a memory of physical abuse or there's sexual abuse and there's a memory of sexual abuse. There's something that took place that you can consciously draw a direct line to and say, I know this impacted me. Childhood or developmental emotional neglect is the absence of something that should have happened. And so you can't have a memory of something that never happened that should have happened in order for a person to develop and and experience a healthy kind of psychological development. Validation, feeling seen, feeling heard. If that isn't a part of that person's story, they're not gonna walk into the office saying, I have a memory of something that should have happened that didn't happen. Most of the time they'll say things like, my childhood was fine. I, you know, I, maybe I had, I was bullied in school. Maybe I felt a little overweight starting around nine or 10 years old, but overall my childhood was fine. I have very loving parents and I grew up in a good home and I don't understand why I have an eating disorder because I've never had trauma and I can't find a big T trauma and I don't have abuse. And for me, when I hear that, I immediately go to, well, what dysregulated your nervous system? What lack of self-soothing did you experience? What lack of comfort or validation did you experience that, um, that should have happened, that didn't happen? For me, um, most of my clients will not have some sort of major uh, big T trauma as part of their story. But what we do together is we look for, um, and I teach about emotional neglect. I teach about healthy validation and healthy parenting. I teach about self-soothing and what should have happened in childhood and, and didn't. And that helps people piece their story together and helps them understand what was missing that should have been there in order for healthy development. I know you also do a lot of work with core beliefs. Are, is that where the core beliefs come from in these moments of either, you know, dysregulation of our nervous system? We suddenly, an event, a, a, an event happens that really nobody knows about. And we think, oh, this is me. Like and, an example I'll give is that, you know, I've often said to clients before, you know, if you were on the playground. At, and you were like six years old and suddenly a bunch of kids started teasing you and then they ran away and they kept playing hopscotch or whatever. And that wasn't a big major event externally, but internally that could have been where the core belief comes from. I'm not good enough. People yes. are going to make fun of me. It is my fault. Is this what we're talking about here? Yeah. So from, from my perspective, um, if you look at the body and the brain, in my belief, and this is backed by neuroscience, is that when we come into the world up until the age of six, we don't have any expectations or any associations of what should happen. The world is sort of a blank slate for us. 
and we learn about things. Our brain, our spinal cord, our nervous system learns about things and develops neuronal connections based on positive and negative experiences. So I'll give you an example. When a baby is born and a baby cries, it doesn't cry because it knows that the bottle will come and that's how to get food. It cries because that's its instinct. The baby's instinct is to cry, to express itself when it has a need. And then just by coincidence, mommy comes or daddy comes or whoever, parent comes with a bottle and the baby then learns very quickly, if cry, then food. And it repeats that process. If I cry, then I get food. And then those neurons, you know, whatever fires together, wires together. So that experience teaches something. And that's part of the training, the programming that we all get. If this, then that. That happens to be a positive association because it's for our survival. It's something that we learn that's good for us. A negative association is what I think of when I think of trauma, right? So when I was a little girl, I, um, I walked into the kitchen unsupervised. I don't know why, but I walked into the kitchen unsupervised and I saw something on the stove that I wanted to eat. And when my brain looked at the stove, it saw stove, but it didn't have any association with it. I didn't know what would happen if I touched it. I had no kind of past record for that. And so I touched the stove, I got burned. And what happened in that moment, when we think about the body, what happens in that moment is nerve endings in my fingertips send an electrical impulse down my arm into my spinal cord and up my brain and my brain registers pain. And then my nervous system gets jolted and my brain starts recording everything at hyperspeed with extreme detail in order for me to have a record, an association, a negative association with this stove, right? That this stove is dangerous and I need to be hypervigilant when I'm around the stove. I need to be aware because this is a negative association. And so now as an adult person, I'm not walking around and every time I walk into my kitchen, I'm thinking to myself, oh no, the stove, I have trauma with the stove. It just kind of goes into our subconscious mind where I automatically behave in a way that I have learned for my survival. So I automatically avoid the hot parts of the stove naturally without having to think about it. And so many of our behaviors that are past associations that our body has been programmed to either for our survival or, you know, has had a pain associated to it. So many of our behaviors today are actually records of a past event that is affecting us today. And so for people who, uh, you know, say, I think no one likes me. No one cares about my feelings. Uh, I'm not good enough or or, um, you know, I, I, um, I'm not smart enough or whatever. I'm not thin enough. To me, I always look for where does that association come from? I think therapy is a process where when I'm listening to a person talk, I'm listening to their associations. If this, then that. So if someone says to me, if I see my mom, 
I then get instantly triggered. I'm just so triggered by her. You know, she just makes me want to restrict. I see her and I don't want to eat lunch. I always look for, well, let's talk about what is your nervous system? What kind of associations does your nervous system have? What kind of painful negative associations does your nervous system have with this trigger, if then? It's, it's making me think about people that use food either from restricting or binging, binging, purging, actually any behavior. I'm, I'm imagining when, when you use that example, which first of all, I'm really sorry you burned your hand. Like I felt like I was with you during that example and my heart was hurting and it was very visual. Like I could really, that, that was just a good example. And I was imagining a child who every time they cry because they're hurt or they're scared or they're cold or whatnot, if they have the negative association, meaning nobody ever attends to their emotions or they're yelled at because their emotions are quote unquote too much. This is where we shut down the nervous system. So we don't feel, but we're still in distress. So we start finding other creative ways such as soothing with food, soothing with food in secrecy because being out in, in, in a main area is, is not safe soothing through restriction because it just makes us feel a little bit number. Like that's just what kept going through my head. And this is why it is so important to go back. These little T traumas are foundational. They, they are the foundation of who we are. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's exactly the work. The work is understanding what did happen to me? How do I naturally react to my emotions as an adult? Do I shut down? Do I pretend like I don't have them? Do they frighten me? If I feel like I'm going to cry, does that frighten me? Do I have thoughts like I'm too much or I'm a burden or you don't care about me? Those are all records of past experiences that have just been, you know, the person has been marinating in those experiences in their childhood. And when you marinate in something for years and years and years, and that becomes a part of you, that becomes a part of your experience of yourself. And emotional neglect happens in loving homes all the time, usually because parents come from, you know, their parents didn't teach them about their feelings, about the power of connecting with those feelings. And so this kind of becomes a generational trauma, right? Where you might, you know, your kid might cry and you might say, don't cry, right? Don't cry or go to your room, right? And, you know, wipe that, wipe those tears off and put a smile on your face, right? Those moments are for a little kid, very life-threatening. And the nervous system is kind of designed to think about life or death, right? And so if I'm crying and I'm a little kid and I sense that I'm being rejected or I sense that my caregiver that I'm dependent on is displeased or is angry with me or is shut down, or even if my caregiver becomes overly emotional, that then dysregulates my nervous system I form a mental record of that, and I learn how to survive in that environment 
and find other ways to regulate my nervous system outside of the relationship, but I do have to find other ways to regulate my nervous system. And in my experience, the precursor to any addictive behavior is learning to tune out. If my mother or my caregiver is distressed, tormented, depressed, anxious, stressed, as an infant, as a young child, I can't say, you know, mom, that really dysregulates my nervous system, gives me a lot of anxiety. Could you please regulate your nervous system, right, so that I can feel safe here? But as an infant, I don't have the ability to do that. I'm sort of stuck in my environment. And so I learn to tune out. I learn to disconnect. I learn to numb out. And I think that that's really the precursor for all addictive tendencies later on in life. We just learn not to be present because the environment we're in is too dysregulating for our nervous system. It reminds me, one of the one of the things that have come from the pandemic and all of us being virtual is I'm I'm actually I I'm privy to what happens in my clients' homes now, right? Like I I'm in their home with them almost. And I've had clients that live in very chaotic households and I can hear it while I'm in session with them. I can hear the chaos, I can hear the screaming, I can hear doors slamming and it's as if nothing's happening for the client. They don't even, because that's their way of surviving an environment that regardless of what it's like, it's their family. So you have to find a way to adapt and survive. And that's what happens. They tune it out. But that also means you're tuning out everything. It's really hard to say, I'm going to turn out, excuse me, everyone, tune out some chaos, but I'm I'm not going to tune out happiness or I'm not going to tune out love. I'm not going to tune out curiosity. Like it's, it's not, I don't even know where I was going with that, Mo. I'm so sorry. I just was, I just was thinking like it's, it is, it is a powerful survival skill, but it kills soul. Yes, it really does because it numbs us out and we become just, we're just trying to survive, which is not Um, what we need in order to be in alignment with our purpose, right? In order to thrive, in order to be healthy, in order to be expressive and creative and create stuff and contribute, we have to be in in a mindset that is outside of just operating off instinct and reactivity, right? If I'm in an environment where all I'm doing is being reactive to my environment, I'm not in a space that is conducive to my best self, right? The one that is creative and, and, and in, the, in the present moment, right? And so recovery, I think, is the process of, of really learning how do I regulate my nervous system and understanding this isn't my fault, right? This isn't my fault. This is a combination of a lot of different things, but how do I learn to regulate my nervous system in a way that is healthy, that can bring me peace. And there's lots of different ways to do that. But when you gave the example of the chaos, right, in the house, all of that, um, I forgot what I was going to say. You said something that really stood out to me. I was pointing out that there was so much chaos going on and my client was sitting in front of me as if nothing was happening in my nervous system. Mo, 
I was anxious. And, and I even reflected that back to the client. And I said, I'm not sure what's happening because just from being on my side of the camera, I'm anxious. What are you experiencing? And they're like, no, nothing. This is normal all the time. And I thought this was survival, learning how to just, you know, dismiss that anxiety and chaos. I was going to say the example that you gave is something that we're all as human beings equipped to do, which is adaptability, right? We adapt and get used to the good things. That's sort of like hedonistic adaptability. I could get a new car and then after like a week or so, I'm like, eh, it's just my car. Or I could get a new phone and after a week think, huh, it's just my phone. Or that novel thing, we adapt to it. But we also adapt to really negative experiences as well. My grandmother said something really wise. She said, never spend too much time in a stinky room. And, and I'm translating it from Russian. But essentially what that means is if I walk into a room and I sense that it stinks, my body will adapt to that. And that will become the norm for me. And after a while, that room won't be so stinky anymore, right? I'll just become immune to it. And any new person walking in will go, whoa, what is that? But for me, because as human beings, we have this incredible survival mechanism for adaptability, we then can adapt and get used to environments that are chaotic, disruptive, destructive, disordered, unhealthy, and we can maintain homeostasis and adaptability for a long time in that environment and not feel the, not feel the direct impact of that for years. That's also where sort of, how do I say this? Um, this, this is also where we adapt to behaviors. So you can adapt to an environment and then you can adapt to an, an unhealthy coping skill. And all of these are, we're talking about neuroplasticity and patterns and creating new brain grooves. This is also why people stay in dangerous environments because for survival reasons, they have adapted to it. This is why never blame a victim, never say, and I, I, and this is going in a totally different direction. So I want to be careful talking about traumas like that, but we adapt to survive. I've had clients that have had terrible, terrible abuse growing up and they blame themselves. And I say, what was the alternative? They, and, or they would say, I just froze and let it happen. And I say, that was your way of surviving. Your body probably knew if you did anything aggressive, it would get even more harm. So we're always trying to survive. Yes. We even have a built-in, and Karen, you know this, we have a built-in mechanism in our brain for our survival called the amygdala, which is the size of two almonds put together. And the amygdala uh, decides for us. The amygdala um, is, is the part of the brain that when we sense danger, it takes over our nervous system and, and the nervous system connects to the whole body and, and is how we release commands from the brain. And so if I perceive danger or if I perceive a threat, my amygdala turns off my executive functioning, which is my 
the part of my brain where I can choose what I want to do. And it just takes over my body and the amygdala takes over my body and it has sort of five reactions in the face of danger. Most people are familiar with fight or flight, right? But there's also freeze, fawn, and flop. And those are the reactions of the amygdala where I can't choose which one I want to do. My amygdala takes choice out of the equation and my survival instincts kick in. And if I am not bigger than you, stronger than you, and I can't outrun you, my, my survival brain knows freeze is a good option. And if I freeze, right, that's not a choice. That happens, right? My, my amygdala takes over. And if I freeze, it ensures my survival in that moment. And many, many victims of abuse or assault, you're right, they later on blame themselves. But this information can be so liberating because if you understand that your nervous system was put in a position where your instinct, your survival, your animal instincts took over, and that was the most desirable outcome for your survival, the truth is, is if you're living to talk about it, it worked. That doesn't mean that there isn't damage, psychological and emotional damage that you have to heal from, but your body did its job. Can I ask you to repeat the last two? I'm very familiar with fight, flight, and freeze. I don't, I don't know the last two. So can you explain those? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, there's fawn and there's flop. Okay, so fawning is appeasement. It's, it's, um, it's trying to uh, appeal or appease the threatening person. So if I can get on your good side and you like me and I please you, then if I can make a friend out of my enemy, so to speak, then I will survive that situation. And appeasement is a strategy that many people who later on in life struggle with people-pleasing or codependency or enmeshment. What that triggers in my brain is to survive their childhood, it's likely that they used a strategy of fawning or appeasement. And um Flop is essentially playing dead or falling asleep, right? A lot of times um, people will, uh, it's different than freeze, but uh, babies a lot of time will do the flop mechanism where they will cry and cry and cry, um, especially like during sleep training, which can be very difficult for all parties involved, but they'll cry and cry and cry, which is very dysregulating to the nervous system. And when they realize no one is coming, that overwhelms the nervous system. And because that feels like life or death, they then engage in a mechanism called flop where they kind of flop over, play dead. And the parent has the experience of, oh, my kid is self-soothing. They're going to sleep. But actually, it's a survival mechanism called flopping that's kicking in. And you can actually time it. Flop happens about five to seven minutes into crying, usually. So you can actually time the, the time that the infant starts crying. Seven minutes into it, usually you'll start to see that flop response kicking in. And so... This isn't a conversation about sleep training because it's a controversial topic, but that's what the research shows. So 
how do you feel with all the years you've worked with eating disorders? And this is sort of a really big, vague question, but let's take everything we've been talking about and apply eating disorder behaviors. What what are the functions that you're noticing from your clients, the function of their behaviors? How is it, how is it uh in a in a non-healthy way, quote unquote, helping them? Is that does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a question that many clients have. Like, I know this is unhealthy for me. My doctors are concerned, but and I kind of want to stop, right? I'm at that stage in my recovery where I want to stop but I can't. And so really, when I look at the functionality of behaviors, I look at the neuroscience behind it. I look at habituation. I provide a lot of education because I think information is potential power. We have to have the emotional investment in the information and take action to rewire our nervous system and, and go through the process of neurogenesis. But But essentially, information can be very, very powerful. So when a person is, this is sort of um, an example of what I I see a lot. You know, I have a client right now that is a a young female, 14 years old, started seeing me because she has anorexia. And when we talk about her childhood, well, she's still a child, but when we talk about her earlier childhood experiences, we learn that even though her family is very loving, they don't really know what to do with her anxiety. And and when she has fear or she has anxiety or she gets emotional, mom will say, don't worry, don't stress, don't cry, it'll be okay. And dad shuts down, right? So this person is not getting validation. They're not feeling seen. They're not feeling heard. And so they learn to tune out, right? But they also learn to stumble upon things that will release the chemicals that make them feel better from a neuroscience perspective. And restriction releases the same chemicals that happen when we are experiencing pain, right? If I get a burn, that releases in my brain certain endorphins to help me cope with the pain. And restriction does release, when I'm starving, it does release the endorphins that help me regulate pain in my body. And, and from a chemical perspective, that starts to feel good. And so when people say restriction feels good from a physical perspective, that is true. It can, that doesn't mean that it's healthy. Drugs feel good too, right? But, but it, it does feel good. And then from a psychological perspective, we have beliefs that get formed and the beliefs are I'm disciplined. This is self-soothing. I'm in control. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm superior. This gives me a sense of achievement. And those beliefs are then kind of fired and wired with those beliefs get fired and wired with the chemicals coursing through the body. And that becomes the person's experience. And so a belief essentially is a feeling that I get in my body that I'm certain about. I don't have any doubts about the thought and the feeling that I'm having in my body. And so a lot of times the eating disorder behavior from a scientific perspective does release chemicals that the body starts to crave and it expects it expects to get those chemicals 
And then the person forms psychologically an identity and a belief system around that, that, that starts to kind of become who they think they are, giving them what I call pseudo mind, body, spirit connection, right? I think I have a purpose. So my eating disorder gives me that it fulfills, quote unquote, my spiritual need because I have a purpose and I have a destiny and I have desire and I think I know what I want out of life. And then, you know, physically my body is trained to habitually do these behaviors. So I feel in control, even though I'm out of control. And then the self um, sort of is not even in the picture, right? So it gives this pseudo experience of being in alignment when actually we're completely disconnected from our authentic mind, body, spirit. It also, when we talk about it from neuroscience perspective, it explains a little bit, like I'm imagining if any, any loved ones are listening to this who have been, you know, wringing their hands and being like, why can't they just stop? This gives a really clear explanation that it is more than just a will. It is not just defiance. It is a, your brain chemicals have adapted. I mean, this is, this is really, this is phenomenal. One of the things you and I talked about before we started the interview is resistance to therapy. And so, of course, I'm sitting here as if I were client and I would be resistant, which is one of the reasons why I was res resistant, excuse me, everyone, to give up my eating disorder. I didn't want to feel what it felt like to actually be me without it. And so how do you work with clients that are resistant to the process? So I would say resistance is a great sign. And a therapist's job, a good therapist's job, is to become a master at managing the resistance. Resistance, I think of in therapy as a law, just like there's the law of gravity. Right now, I'm, I know that the law of gravity is applying to me, but I'm not really aware of it because I'm not trying to go against it. But let's say I had the idea that I wanted to float right? Or I wanted to fly. And I would try to run, sprint and jump off the ground and launch myself into the ether. Immediately, I would have the awareness or the experience that gravity is going to bring me right back down to where I am, because I'm trying to fight against a universal law. Resistance is the law that happens when we try to change. From a neuroscience perspective, my body, is, my body likes a predictable future. Right, Like a trained animal, my body likes to know a predictable future based on a predictable past. My body likes to be prepared for things and likes to know what's going to happen next. We call it habits, but the that's the body's way. And so if we try to make a change, what automatically happens every single time when a person actually wants to make a change is they experience the sensation of resistance, that fear that just comes up inside of them that can be, that can be very scary if they want to make a change and maybe even frustrating, but it's a law. And so managing resistance in the session is about having an awareness. That's the first step. I'm aware that I'm experiencing resistance to this new thought. 
I'm aware that I'm experiencing resistance to this new feeling. I'm aware that I'm experiencing resistance to this um, new belief system. I have an awareness. I feel myself wanting to get out of the predictable future and create a change and do something different. And I feel that resistance in my body kind of sucking me back into the vortex of the predictable me. And anyone who's trying to make a change has experienced a lot of resistance. And I have a personal example for, for this. When, um, when I learned about the power of meditation, I personally have always hated meditation. I have a hard time sitting in my body like we all do. And, um, and so I, I really, I'm into the science, right? So I read the science. I understand on a logical level the power of meditation. And so I made a decision that instead of waking up in the morning um, and checking my phone, which admittedly I do do, um, I decided I was going to meditate in the morning. So I was going to make a change, right? I was going to be a different person, a person who meditates in the morning, a healthier me. And so my alarm goes off at six o'clock as it normally does. And because my body is habituated, I wake up at 5.59 because my body likes a predictable future where it knows what's going to happen. And so instead of checking my phone, I close my eyes, I take a deep breath, and I start meditating. And immediately, my brain and my nervous system start producing thoughts like, don't you have an email coming in? Is that a text? Did you hear a beep? What's happening on Instagram? How many followers do you have, right? All these racing thoughts. And then when I have that, many people who start meditating think, oh, I, I'm not good at meditating. I can't quiet the mind. But in reality, what's actually happening is I've deviated from a habit that I have. And my brain is waiting for the hit of dopamine and the serotonin that it gets every morning at six o'clock when I look at my social media and see that I have 30 likes on a post. Okay, so, so my brain knows I get dopamine first thing when I wake up in the morning and the, the animal, the, the, you know, the body as an animal wants its treat, right? It knows. And so it will do everything in its power to trigger me into picking up my phone and doing what it, I always do. And that's why change is so hard because the body is, the body has become the mind, essentially. The body dictates what we do. The brain dictates what we do. And even if my mind, even if my self-awareness says, I want something different, I want something better for myself. I believe that I deserve something better. My body is out of alignment. So the process, and it is a process, the process is slow, but the process is about rewiring those neuronal connections, doing opposite action, and also tolerating that you're going to take a step forward, you're going to have success, and then you're going to take a step back and go to those old behaviors. But all of us are not immune to our nervous system and to our brains. And most of us, we all have it. Most of us don't know how it works. And again, this goes back to the example you said earlier, which is a client will come in and say, I know this is bad for me. I know this isn't helping. It doesn't even feel good anymore yet I can't stop. It's that habitual. And I mean, is our eating disorder behaviors habits? I think that's a very, you know, in, in some sense, a little bit of a provocative way of ending the podcast soon. But, you know, how, 
we habituate through neuroplasticity to ways that we, whether, whether they make us feel good or not, that's, and for that instant, even if we know it's not going to be a long-term solution or relief, we get, we want that instant interruption, relief for a moment to give us almost like a reprieve from our distress. That's right. Even if your mind, your consciousness, your self-awareness, even if you have the self-awareness to know better and do better, your body craves, and I'm using that word in quotes, craves what is familiar. And meditation, the, the Tibetan symbol for the word meditation means to become familiar with. And so meditation is the process of becoming familiar with the body right? Becoming familiar with the body's natural thoughts, natural tendencies, natural habits, and learning to observe and become familiar with the body and the brain and the, and the nervous system as it is. I'm just observing that. I'm becoming familiar with it so that then I can wire it to change. And we all develop a sense of identity around our habits and our habits get formed very early on in life. And so most of who you think you are today was actually established years ago in an environment where you didn't have a choice. You just had to survive. And so it's a really, really interesting process. Okay. Mo, you, you have to come back because I just suddenly went on this like, oh my God, the I am fill in the dots, like fill in the blank. That is a huge, bigger conversation that I want to make sure we explore. And it's also when I, why I say to clients, they say, oh, I'm anorexic. And I'm like, no, you have anorexia nervosa. You have bulimia nervosa. You have binge eating disorder. They do not define you, but this is what happens. I, you know, I used to be considered a crybaby because I was, I'm very, I am a crybaby. Nope. That's not my identity. And I'm sorry. I just, I, I feel like I did what we talk about the doorknob moments when a client is walking out the door and they're like, Oh, one more thing. And then they drop a really big situation and you're like, uh, and they're like, let's talk about that next week. And I'm thinking you've been sitting here for the last 50 minutes. And as you're walking out now, so I feel like I just did that by opening up this hole, but that just means you have to come back if that's okay. I would love to come back, Karen. I have a lot to say about I am and values and beliefs and identity. It's something I'm really passionate about. So if you give me a platform to speak about it, I'm happy to speak about it. All right, everyone, you heard it here. Mo is coming back. Since you were coming back, I am going to, I'm going to ask you, is there anything more that you want to say or anything I didn't ask that's not about what you're going to return and talk about? Is there anything that I didn't ask you today? Hmm. That's, an, that's a great question. I would say, and I don't know that you didn't ask me this, but I would say that I would, I would encourage listeners that if you're having the thought if your self-awareness or your higher self, your wise mind, your, if you're having the thought that I want something better, even if you don't know how to get there, go to therapy, go to, you know, find a place where you can start to put an emotional investment in that thought 
so that you can start to change your life because people can fully recover, as you know, and I have seen that and you have seen that and there's no better time than the present. So if you're, if this is resonating with you, if you want more information, there's lots of, lots of resources I'm happy to share with your listeners about neuroscience and neurogenesis. And also I have, um, I, I do some of this stuff on my Instagram and, and so there's, there's lots of places to get more information about this. Mo, you're fantastic. My my heart is so full right now just because it's been years since we've seen each other. And just from this conversation, it, it was so rich. So I just want to thank you so, so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Karen. It means a lot to me. Well, your 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 wisdom is is very powerful for me. So anyway, I am going to close this up here, this little love fest that we're having. So that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.